Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's edition of The Naked Scientists. I'm Chris Smith, and also here this week is Helen Scales. Hi, Helen. Hi. Now, this week, a hot story is going to kick us off because scientists have discovered the historical origins of curry, and it's a lot older than you might think. Also, have researchers finally uncovered the origins, or at least the Achilles heel, of the AIDS virus so that we can make a vaccine? And how scientists aboard a submarine got fairly shocked recently when a giant squid sidled up next to them and began flirting with their headlights. Helen. (laughs) And also this week, it is our science phone-in show. We're devoting most of the programme to answering your science questions, including why does it get colder the higher up a mountain you go? And does cracking your joints really give us arthritis? And if you're in the mood to win something, we've got the most amazing prize for you this week because, and this is going to gobsmack your friends if you get one, we've got a mud-powered clock to give away. To tell you, uh, or at least to, can you can you tell us in order to win it how many atoms there are roughly in a grain of sand? And if you get the closest answer, then you're going to win. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. Chris, are you a fan of hot, spicy food? I love a curry. I really, really do love a curry. And when we were talking to David Julius not so long ago, a couple of weeks ago on this programme, uh, I said, do you think curry is addictive? And he kind of agreed and said, yeah, I think it is to a certain extent. I think you burn out the nerve fibres in your mouth that feel pain. And, you think so? Are you a Vindaloo man? And this makes you uh, become accustomed <laughs> to hot curry. And yes, yeah. I, yes, I am a Vindaloo wow. person. Wow. OK, well, I'd certainly definitely go for a red Thai curry, the hottest one in the Thai family, which I think is great. But it seems that us humans have been enjoying fiery food for a very long time indeed. In fact, South Americans may have been spicing up their food with chilies for at least 6,000 years. Now, that's according to a new study which found minuscule traces of chilies in ancient cookware from Ecuador, a discovery that was something of an accident. For years, archaeologists have been scratching their heads over the identity of ancient grains of starch from South America, which weren't in any of the known staple food groups, because we would expect to be find things like maize and squash and things like that. So where, where did they find this starch? This was actually in, embedded into um, the mortar and pestle so the, the objects that you kind of grind up food with. And these, so archaeological specimens of these yeah, things. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, archaeological. And they were hanging around and no one really figured out what they were and perhaps weren't thinking very broadly about what it could be. But that's until a team of scientists led by Linda Perry from the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C., who they discovered that modern cultivated peppers, including chilies, um, have much larger starch grains than their wild relatives, which got them thinking to look at perhaps where these starch grains, these unknown starch grains, were they chilli and that's what they actually found that they were fiery chilli peppers how do they know they're the, the fiery ones and not other members of the family like oh, I knew you'd sweet that. peppers that are not so nasty I'm not actually sure exactly why that was um, I think it's something to do with this particularly large size of these these, um, these grains um, but of course it is the whole family of chilies that includes the capsicums the sweet peppers that we eat as well as all the different sizes and, and I don't actually know why it is that it's meant to be the smallest ones are the most fiery aren't they so if you go for the bird's eye chilies in Thailand in they Thailand, will blow your head yeah. off Absolutely, but the big ones are all right. But we've—it's we, basically—it's confirming something for us that we've suspected for a long time, but never been able to prove that actually these ancient South Americans have been using chilies for a very long time, long before Christopher Columbus turned up and took chilies back to Europe. Because it was actually that he brought them back and distributed them around the rest of the world, because they were only really in, initially um, grown in South America. So all these places that we associate with mm. with hot curry, like India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and those kind of areas. 
didn't actually they're, they're not the, the sort of cauldron of curry well, it's curry's origins I think, you know, there's lots of other ingredients in a curry it's like curry powder and so on but the chilli part of it very much in Southeast Asian cooking is you know it's an essential ingredient and yes that's um, South American but I think one of the funniest things is to think why on earth did the ancient, ancient civilizations cultivate chilies in the first place because you can imagine you might have found you know, a wild chilli growing somewhere and take a bite of it and it was the most blistering horrible experience why on earth even the most macho man why would you have bothered going to all the effort of domesticating a chilli? Well, some people have suggested um, that one reason for that might be because the food that people had available to them was pretty horrible. Uh, the meats that they were eating, if they were eating any, might have been off or bordering on going off. And therefore, if you had something which was pretty strongly flavoured without actually ruining the flavour of the underlying flavour, if you see what I mean. Mm. So chilli has this very powerful masking effect because it, it puts you to so, so, you're so much concentrating on what's going on, on with your mouth that some of the less nice flavours may get overlooked, let's say. Okay. So people have said it's a good way to mask nastier food yeah, and therefore okay. you'll tolerate things that, that aren't necessarily so good. Well, I say hooray for the chilli, I say. Great stuff indeed. Good piece of news uh, also from the American continent, this time from North America though. It's from the NIH, National Institutes of Health Vaccine Research Centre. It's a guy called Peter Kwong and he's published a paper in the journal Nature this week in which they've got their best insight yet into why it is that HIV is so successful as a pathogen. In other words, why it is that in the 20 years or so we, we sort of acknowledged last year 20 years since HIV was formally identified why it is that we've now got 50 million people around the world who are HIV positive and, and 5 million new cases every single year yet despite the best that modern medicine can throw at this we're still no closer to having a vaccine for it and what's really interesting is if you study people who are infected with HIV they make heaps of antibodies of many different types but none of them are, in, are at all effective at blocking the ability of a virus to, to jump from that around the cells of that person or even to get in stop it getting to another person you can have someone which uh, you sort of almost vaccinate with hiv they'll make some antibodies but when the virus comes along it can still infect them so Why if, we, is that? if we come to some better understanding of this then well what they've done is to to do, use a process called x-ray crystallography and what this means is that you take little portions of the virus the bits that you're interested in and you make crystals of them and shine x-ray beams into them and you can study their three-dimensional shape that's how we looked at uh, DNA and things like that, wasn't it? That was very important there. Exactly right. Now, uh, these guys ma managed to use an antibody, which is called B12. It's an artificial antibody. And this very interesting artificial antibody uh, works by snuggling up to a certain portion on the surface of HIV, and it can block the ability of HIV to infect. Now, why it's important is that what, the, what these people have found with their X-ray crystallographic studies is that when HIV goes up close to a cell, the virus is covered in this sort of viral Velcro. It's lots of little hooks, which are like grappling hooks, that the virus uses to lock onto a target cell and then invade it. And the reason that antibodies we normally make when we're infected with HIV don't work is because the virus is very clever. It keeps its cards close to its chest. It keeps these, these grappling hooks locked away in a hidden pouch on the surface of the virus. It first gets close to where it needs to be on the surface of the cell, and that initial contact makes the virus change its shape on its surface very, very subtly, which then causes this hidden bit to appear and lock onto the cell and pull the virus in very, very quickly before the immune system's had a chance to see it. And so what they think is, if we can make a stable form of this bit that does the hooking on and present that to the immune system as a vaccine, it might be that you, you make more of these antibodies that can recognise this shape-shifting bit of the virus and therefore we'll have a, 
well, a more promising way to make a vaccine. That sounds great. Is it? And this is a fixed thing because I, um, I don't know an awful lot about the details of the what's going on on the surface of these viruses. But I had the understanding that it was changing, and that was one reason why we really weren't able to figure out what was going on because it was the surface kind of structure of uh, the virus was changing constantly. Is that right? Well, one of the reasons that it's very difficult for the immune system to catch up with HIV is it is a sort of moving target because it uses a form of genetic material called RNA, which is like DNA, but instead of DNA, which has got two chains of information, one of which is a mirror image of the other, and if one of those those copies gets damaged, you use its mirror image to repair it. With HIV, it's just a single strand. So if you get some genetic changes in there, then they can't be repaired. So the virus makes lots of mistakes when it copies itself, and as a result, it, it ends up changing the surface appearance of the virus every time it grows and as a result it's very very different every time you make a new copy of the virus and therefore the immune system can never catch up but the good news is that this bit of the virus that it needs to lock onto these cells to get in because it targets certain white blood cells in our immune system that can't change because if it changes too much the virus wouldn't be able to get into the cell anymore so it has to keep this pretty much the same so there's a strong selective pressure to keep it the same and that's why it keeps it hidden and so if we can make a version of it that's stable with it on the outside it should enable the the researchers to make something which works as a kind of vaccine and makes people make antibodies that do work because it really would make such a difference because we have come so far 20 years and we still haven't figured this out it seems quite incredible but maybe this will help fantastic well as always I'm afraid I have to apologise ahead of time you know what I'm like I can't get through a show without mentioning something that came out of the ocean so here I am I'm going to get out of my system this time um, but this week we've had some really exciting glimpses yet again into what life is like in the unseen deep ocean from a team of scientists led by Tsunami Kubadera from the National Science Museum in Tokyo who've taken a brand new high definition film of deep sea squid which seem to be behaving rather strangely a very long way down beneath the waves how far down so this is the Dana octopus squid, which lives... They've been photographing it between three and 900 metres down. It's quite a long way, nearly a kilometre down. And how big is this giant squid? It grows over two metres. So it's quite big. quite a big one, yes. I think uh, this is not as giant as some of the giant squid we, we know about, but... Uh, Quite a, quite a reasonable sized animal and it has these large glowing bulbs called photophores on the end of two of its eight legs that's why it's called an octopus squid and this new video footage taken off the Ogasawara Islands, I think that's right in the western North Pacific shows the squid using these shining lights while it's hunting and this might be partly they might be trying to confuse or perhaps stun the prey with a blinding flash of light or possibly even using the light to measure the distance of the prey and how far to see how far away it is in the pitch black of the deep sea environment. And another thing the team found were, was quite surprising was just how swift and agile a predator these Dana octopus squid are. Because they previously thought from some of the structure of the muscles that they found in sort of dead specimens that have been trawled up that they were sluggish and very slow moving. But actually they nip around quite happily all over the place up to about nine kilometres an hour and are really quite agile. But the kind of funniest thing they discovered, and I just love this, this picture in my mind of what's happening. And we can also actually have a look at this online. If you want to go to the, um, we'll put it on our website. You can have a link through to the, the journal. Um, and they've got um, films online, clips you can have a look at. But um, when the team switched on two torches attached to the outside of their submersible vessel, these squid started acting very strangely indeed and really making, paying quite a lot of attention to them. And uh, and actually even, it looked like they were trying to communicate with them, flashing back their 
photo fours. And they think... So it, this is sort of squid flirting? It could have been trying to flirt with its newfound squid friend because it's a very lonely place down there in the deep sea. And so you find someone you think might be your friend and you have to go and say hello. I think that's rather lovely. It's amazing that the lengths that these deep sea animals will go to to exploit that environment because I was sort of working something out the other day, which is why the sea looks blue. Uh, that's another story. But the point is that once you get more than a certain depth underwater, the only light that can really get down there is blue light. So if you if you have eyes that can see anything other than blue light, then it looks pretty much black. So there's some fish, these dragon stomid fish, which live at very great depths. And what they've done is to develop this additional organ which sits just beneath their eyes and it fires out red light. And because red light is totally unknown at those kind of depths, most other fish just can't see it. So what these fish have now got is this asecret covert means of communication with each other because other fish of the same species can see it because their eyes are adapted to see this red light. And also you've now got this perfect infrared spy camera because you can shine it round all about you. Any fish that you illuminate in the beam doesn't know it's being spotlighted and you can then rush in and snap it up. It's fantastic. And some of the creatures colour themselves red deliberately because they think they won't be seen because there's no red light down there. And these guys are bumper getting in there and uh, tricking them. It's pretty sneaky, I'd say. The Naked Scientists. Supported by the Wellcome Trust. Now, are you feeling experimental? It's adequately di- dark outside that our experiment for this week will now work if you want to have a go. Anna Lacey is out in Cottenham with Dave Ansel, and they're joined by Luke and Alice, and they're going to have a look at the effects you see, which is pretty spooky, when you hold something under a street light. Hi, guys. Hello, yes, and welcome to Cottenham. We're here in a house here in Cottenham this week with Dave. What is it we're going to be doing today? We'll be looking at some strange properties of street lights. We'll be finding out what's going on there soon. But uh, before that, we've got two helpers who live here in Cottenham. So uh, can you tell me your name and how old you are? Hi, I'm Luke and I'm 14. Hello, I'm Alice and I'm Luke's brother and I'm, on, and I'm eight. <laughs> You're eight? Well, that's brilliant. Thanks there to Luke and Alice. And uh, so, Luke, tell me, what do you like about science? I like explosions and stuff. Explosions? And what about you, Alice? Well, I like Sims Luke Bangs. Dave, are we going to be getting any bangs this evening? I'm afraid no bangs at the moment, but it's quite interesting all the same. OK, well, tell us then. You, you've got something in your hand. What are we going to be doing this evening? What you need is a nice brightly coloured thing. A magazine's good. I've got a science festival programme here. So if you're anywhere near Cambridge on the 17th or 24th of uh, March, come along. There's lots of exciting science to do. Well, thanks for the sales pitch. Uh, now, what next? Well, you also want a nice old-fashioned streetlight, one of the yellow ones. There's two different kinds of yellow ones. There's really yellow ones and kind of whitey yellow ones. You want the really yellow old-fashioned streetlight. They're kind of almost orangey. That's the ones, yeah. So what do you want Luke and Alice to do first? Well, first of all, do you want to have a look at this? Can you see any colours in that? There's green, there's purple, there's yellow. And what can you see, Alice? Well, I can see red, green and purple too. Okay, so basically we can see lots of colours. That's probably what we might have expected, seeing as, you know, we're in a nice lounge here with lots of lights on. Uh, uh, Now, what do you want them to do next? We're just going to take it outside and have a look at it under that streetlight and see what it looks like. Okay, well, that sounds quite simple. But let's ask for some predictions first. So, Luke, when you take this magazine outside and look at it under the streetlight, what do you think might happen? Well, I think some of the colours might look different. And um, they might change colour, at least what's what we might think. OK, well that, that sounds good to me. And Alice, what do you think might happen when we go outside and look at this underneath the streetlight? Well, I think that some of it might go blurry. 
Okay, well, they both sound like excellent predictions to me. Well, what we want you to do is have a go at this at home. It's, it's really easy. Just get any kind of magazine with lots of colours on. Have a look at it inside so you're well acquainted with the colours. Then go outside underneath one of those quite orangey street lights, and then have a look again and uh, tell us what you see. So what you need to do once you've got your answer is call in on 08459 or you can email your answer to chris at thenakedscientist.com. So... Uh, uh, until then, bye from Cottenham for now, and we'll be back later. Thanks, Anna. And if you want to have a go at that, just remember, get yourself a nice, glossy, shiny magazine, take it out and wave it under an orange street light, and tell us what you see. First person through with the correct observation could win yourself a mud-powered clock. Right, Felix is on the line. Hi, Felix. Hi. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Great Thank to have you with us. Yeah. What do you want to talk about? Um, I want to talk about eyes. How come when you look in the sun or a bright light with your eyes closed... Your eyelids are red. Is that like your blood or all the colours being absorbed by red? Oh, you're pretty close, actually. It's a bit of both. Uh, There's two things going on here, Felix. One of them is that when the light hits the skin, obviously there's a lot of blood in skin. It's got nice rich blood supply, especially on the eyelids, and they're very thin. The skin there's thin, and so there's lots of blood vessels relative to the other tissue, so the light can get through. Blood absorbs all colours apart from red, and that's why blood looks red, and that's because it's got iron in the haemoglobin that's in the blood cells, makes it look red. So some of that light is being reflected out of the blood in your eyelid and into your eye, and that means you see a bit of red. But there's another cunning reason, and that is that when light shines through tissue, have you ever done the experiment where if you take a torch and hold it under your chin, your face glows red? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, what's happening there is that tissue, such as skin and your face even, transmits red wavelengths of light very, very well. But it doesn't transmit blue or wavelengths of light towards the blue end of the spectrum very, very well. Because you know that white light or the light that comes out of a torch is a mixture of different colours, isn't it? Are you aware of that? Yeah. Yeah. And so some of those colours are more towards the red end of the spectrum. They have a longer wavelength and others have a shorter wavelength. They're at the blue end of the spectrum. Now, skin carries through red waves wavelengths very, very well, but blue ones get reflected out. So what happens is that the light hits your eyelid, the blue wavelengths tend to get scattered or reflected back out of, your, out of the surface of your skin, whereas the red goes through much better. So by the time the light comes through your shut eyelid and goes into your eye and hits your retina where you can see the light, it's mainly red light that's getting into the eyeball, and that's why you tend to see more red. So it's a combination of the two things, and I think you almost said it right. Mm, great, thank you. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, that's fine. Brilliant. Well, it's a good question. Thank you very much. Yeah. Do you want to have a go at our quiz? Yes, please. OK, this is fact or fiction. Have you played this before? Yeah. Okay, okay, here we go. Uh, another name for vitamin C is citric acid. Do you think that's fact or fiction? Um, fiction. Absolutely right, yes. It's actually called ascorbic acid, although citrus fruits have lots of vitamin C in them. Very good. One out of one so far. A maple tree about 50 feet tall will have about 200,000 leaves on it, Felix. Is that science fact or science fiction? Um, Fact. You're right on the ball today. Yeah, absolutely. A tree this size has a leaf area of about a sixth of an acre, or about 177,000 leaves in total, which is pretty amazing, I have to say. It's great. What a genius. Felix, thank you very much. Thank you. Now, I should point out, you're actually listening to us in uh, Dorset. Yeah. So you you get us on the internet. Um, Yeah, I use the podcast. Brilliant. Okay. well, thank you. Thank you for being a fan. (laughs) Great to have you on the show. Cheers, Felix. Yeah.
Bye. Bye. It's Chris and Helen, the Naked Scientists. If you have any questions for us, call in now at 08459 25 2000. Email chris at nakedscientist.com or you can send us a text on 07786 20 I've got an email here from uh, Bill, who is a big fan, which is fantastic, and he has a question for us. So he says, I have a rather large cast iron pan that I cook with, and it has developed a warp that makes the centre of the pan lower than the sides. It is not uncommon for an older pan. I have lots that do that myself. But his question is, why is it that when he puts oil on the pan and heat the oil, um, it defies gravity by travelling up the warped sides of the pan away from the heat? It's like a ring of oil around a drier spot in the middle. What's going on, he says? It's a mystery force. And uh, what's this mystery force repelling his oil? Well, any ideas, Chris? This sounds well, kind of we, we crazy. Put, we put this on last week's programme and we asked if anyone at home could help. Well, Dirk wrote to us and Dirk said, um, this is about your call for help regarding the warp cast iron frying pan. I think that when the pan's reheated on the stove, the pan expands and the warping is lessened, which reduces the pooling in the centre. And subsequently, the hot oil will move about the frying pan due to convective currents. So that's one explanation, which I think is probably okay. reasonable. Yeah, that makes quite sense. Um, yeah. One other thing, I was thinking about this. I woke up thinking about this this morning because I, you know, I do things like that. <laughs> that's how much um, we care. <laughs> yeah, well, quite. And, uh, and I was thinking, well, well, oil is quite sticky. It likes to stick to itself. Uh, if the oil is in the bottom of the pan and you heat it, the oil tries to expand. Okay? Yeah, okay. Now, where it gets hottest, i.e. where the pan is touching the cooker the best, which is in the bottom of that pool, that's where the oil gets hottest. And as it moves away, it gets uh, cooler. So if it, tries to, if it tries to expand, it pushes itself up the hill a little bit. But the oil is also stickier. Where is it stickiest? Well, it's stickier where it's cooler, which means the uphill bit is going to be stickier now than the bit down in the bottom of the pool. And because the oil is sticking onto other bits of oil, maybe it pulls itself up because of surface tension within okay. the oil. Oh, right. Yeah. So that might be another possible explanation, I think. Okay, it's still, I'm not quite convinced yet, but if anyone else has any ideas out there why this might be, then perhaps we can keep this going. Sorry, Bill, not to be completely conclusive on that, but I think uh, at least it's given some ideas of what might be going on. We've got another one here which is very male-specific, I think, because I don't think you could actually do this if you're a woman, and you'll see why when I read this, Ellen. It says, okay. Dear Chris, uh, I'm a university student in America and I'm a big fan of your podcast. My question is, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So how much force is produced by urination? Could it knock oh, someone goodness. over? Could it knock someone over, especially if they were, say, ailed up? Keep up the good work. Will, who's in Missouri in the US. Oh, thanks, Will. That's very intriguing. So you can see why I think, I think this is more male than female. I do think so, yeah. You'd have to pee quite hard to knock yourself off of the loo if you were well, sitting down quite, as a lady. But yeah. what do you think the answer is? I... I can't possibly think that that would be hard enough to, to, to push you. You mean you're standing up and, no, I don't believe it. I don't believe it at all. No, I don't think so. I mean, surely, I mean, I'm, I'm not a man. I don't know if these things are very different <laughs> than, than what I experience, but uh, I don't think so, no. What do you think at home? If you have a, an idea whether the force being equal and opposite to the force of urination is sufficient to knock you over, give us a call and tell us 08459 25 2000. Email chris at nakedscientist.com or you can send us a text 07786 201960. Don't forget our kitchen science. We want you to go outside with a nice bright magazine and illuminate it or look at it under a street light, a nice orange sodium street lamp. What do you see? There could be a mud-powered clock in it for you. have to say a very big thank you to the noisemakers that have donated this. Noisemakers are a group of scientists that uh, believe in making a very big noise about science because they're really interested in talking about science and making it fun and interesting for everybody. If you want to find out a bit more about them, they're on the web at noisemakers.org.uk. Connor 
is in Tillingham. Hello, Connor. Oh, hello. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. What oh, do you want to talk about? Yes, um, I'd like to ask, please, um, if um, you could launch satellites and perhaps many small capsules from airships to save on all that fuel getting it off the ground. Oh, I see. So you could float the airship up into, into a very high altitude, That's right, which would yes. be f- essentially free, yes. and then you could launch them. Yes. Mm, there's still a problem with this, Connor, which is that you have to achieve what's called escape velocity because right. the Earth's gravity is trying to pull you back down to Earth continuously. The escape velocity for an object going into, say, orbit is 11.5 kilometres per second. So that's how fast, say, the space shuttle is doing when NASA launch seven astronauts up into space to go and visit the International Space Station. Right. So it's not as trivial as just floating up nearer to space and then just pinging yourself on a big elastic band from an airship. Unfortunately, to get the kind of weight up there on the airship, you'd need quite a big airship to start with. Then you'd need a way of accelerating the object to a high enough speed from that height, which means, again, you've got to get lots of fuel aboard, you've got to get that aloft. I think it's quite difficult. All right. (laughs) It's a good idea, though. Yeah, well, save on fuel, I thought. (laughs) Well, you know, people have thought about the idea of a sort of super gun to fire people into space. Um, The problem is that the acceleration would totally mash your brain as you accelerated from ground. One other idea people have put together is rather than just firing firing you like a giant human cannonball would be to have a sort of big linear accelerator where you were speeded up by serial explosions lots of times along a sort of long racetrack. And this meant you could gain the speed you needed, but in increments rather than all at once. Helen. It was Arthur C. Clarke who thought of building a huge, giant elevator, didn't he? And that, that would be, once we'd built our elevator right up into space, we could just come up and down as we pleased. But that doesn't seem to have happened either, unfortunately. <laughs> There's one, one thing that's sort of similar to what you're suggesting, actually, Connor, which is that uh, people were looking at the benefit of, say, instead of putting satellites into space, which is very expensive, what about holding transmission systems aloft with a big airship? Because you can build big airships that will go up to a very high altitude uh, with relatively little expense compared to how much it costs to put a satellite into space. They could then hold the object in space and that would enable you to then beam things back and forth from from high up in the altitude, atmosphere, close to space but not quite in space. And it would do the same or similar job to a satellite but be cheaper. Oh, yes. Do you want a quick go to the quiz? Uh, yes, please. Yeah. Okay, sat- sunlight takes over five hours to reach the planet Pluto. Can I call it a planet? Probably can. Science fact or science fiction? Uh, fact. Absolutely right. Yes, fact. we've got light travelling at about a billion kilometres per hour. Pluto is around six billion kilometres from the sun, so it takes uh, nearly six hours for light to get from the sun to, and uh, all the way to Pluto. Well done, one out of one. Enzymes are a family of microbes that can do useful jobs for scientists and they also make your washing look whiter than white, Connor. Science fact or science fiction? Uh, fact. Right. No. Oh, it's false. That's why oh. I said it was fact. Nearly there. I was, oh dear, I got that wrong too. I shall read what it says in front of me, which says that enzymes are chemicals that speed up reactions between other chemicals by acting as c- catalysts, like the catalytic converter in a car's exhaust pipe. They are made of proteins and cells. A cell's genes tell us how to make all the enzymes that it needs. Connor, thank <laughs> you very much that. for joining Thanks us much. on The all Naked right. Scientist. Right. Thank Bye. you. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks... The Naked Scientists.
It's The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Helen, and time now to find out how various things, including toads, toads are having their poison stolen by snakes, how we could be a step closer to making an artificial kidney, and possibly we're also unlocking the secrets of LSD, and that's because the editor of Chemistry World, the magazine of the Royal Society of Chemistry, and you can find out about Chemistry World on the web at chemistryworld.org. That's Mark Peplow, and he's with us now from Brussels, actually. Hi, Mark. Hello, Chris. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thank you for um, joining us on The Naked Scientist this week. So, now, what's this story about snakes which are robbing toads of their toxins? That's right. Um, most animals tend to steer clear of poisonous toads, um, but scientists have found that there's a species of Japanese snake, uh, the Japanese colubrid snake, that actually seeks out toads because it wants to eat them so it can steal their toxins so that it can use them itself um, to uh, kill its prey. But why doesn't the snake end up succumbing to the toxin? Well, that's the interesting thing. Now that they've actually, now that the scientists involved have actually found out that it's able to do this, um, they they hope now that they're going to be able to work out why it does this. What what they did was um, actually analyse um, two different groups of snake. One of them um, they fed on these toads, uh, and the other one doesn't have the toads in its diet. And they found that it was only the ones that were able to eat toads that ended up being poisonous. So it's not a genetic difference, Mark. It's purely a diet. Difference. That's right. In fact, there's a small island off Japan uh, where these uh, snakes don't have access to toads, and they found that if they took snakes from the island and gave them toads, uh, they ultimately became poisonous after r- a relatively short time. Now, when they looked at exactly what molecules the snake was using, they found that they'd actually changed the molecules slightly. Uh, so they'd taken them in in one form from the toad and just tweaked them chemically. Uh, now, that, the scientists speculate, think, uh, they think that that might be the reason why the snake isn't poisoned by the toads because it can rapidly change their chemistry uh, to stop it doing them damage. Thanks, Mark. So... Helen, you, you got a question about. Um... That's right. Sorry, I was going to. I'm just marvelling at this some kind of cheesy joke about you being you are what you eat. <laughs> but, but, um, Mark, I also hear that um, there's been new steps towards um, a new type of membrane that could allow us to create an artificial kidney. Is that right? That's right. Um, scientists announced this this week. Um, essentially, what it is is um, it's a filter. It's a filter for molecules, uh, and it's just about um, 15 nanometers thick. That's 15 billionths of a metre thick, at least a thousand times thinner than than a human hair. And essentially, if you imagine, it, it's just a, it's like a sieve. It's like the sort of sieve that you would sieve your pasta with in the kitchen, uh, apart from the holes are about a million times smaller. Now, this is important for a variety of reasons. In, in laboratories, you need to separate, say, proteins, very big tangled molecules, uh, from smaller uh, biological molecules for analysis. But that's exactly what's going on in a dialysis machine as well. Um, Now, uh, given the uh, success that the scientists have seen with this, they found that it speeds up this sort of separation of proteins from smaller molecules by at least an order of magnitude. That's at least 10 times faster. Um, In the test that they did, where they were comparing a small uh, fluorescent dye molecule with a a big fat protein called bovine serum albumin, uh, they found that what would normally take uh, several hours using the conventional polymer membranes that you see in dialysis machines, they could achieve the same in about six and a half minutes. Now, if you could actually get this working in a, in a conventional dialysis machine, that potentially speeds up the process tremendously. Now, they're not there yet, 
but this is a very promising material and it, 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 moreover it's really quite tough and relatively easy to manufacture uh, mainly because it's made out of silicon the same stuff that uh, goes in your silicon chips in your computer especially given how much dialysis actually costs the NHS because it's a very expensive process to do. But Mark, uh, lastly this week, you've got an interesting thing here about unlocking how LSD sends us on the trip of a lifetime. Yeah, this is a, a nice short and sweet little story actually. Um, uh, uh, researchers, brain researchers, have always been confused about why um, uh, uh, LSD has such a different effect in the brain compared with other drugs that work in what appears to be quite a similar way. Uh, when you take LSD, of course you shouldn't, um, but it, at those who take LSD, uh, what happens is the molecules actually hit a receptor in the brain, um, a, a serotonin receptor. Normally this is used to uh, carry this molecular, mes uh, to uh, recognize this molecular messenger in your brain called ser serotonin. Uh, but the thing is, if you have a drug like LSD hitting that, why then does um, other drugs, such as sleeping pills, which also hit the serotonin receptor, why don't they give you hallucinations? Well, the researchers have found it's basically because it's not a, uh, a two-stage on-off switch. This receptor can either be uh, off or it can be on by LSD, which sends out one chemical cascade of reactions, which ultimately gives you hallucinations. Or, in fact, they compared another drug, which is very similar to um, LSD in the way that it works in the brain, called lysuride. It's an anti-Parkinson's agent. Um, they looked at exactly how that was interacting with the serotonin uh, receptor, and they found that it was actually switching it to a third a third position which researchers hadn't known about before. Now ultimately understanding how this serotonin receptor switches um, is actually quite important for a variety of um, psychiatric reasons because you can potentially develop new drugs um, that can target these different positions of the uh, serotonin receptor. Mark, thanks very much. That's all right. Mark Peplow, who's the editor of Chemistry World, which is the magazine of the Royal Society of Chemistry. And you can find out more about those stories at their website, which is chemistryworld.org. got an email here from Brian in Nagoya in Japan. Thanks for emailing us, Brian. He says, Konnichiwa, naked scientist. I just wanted to say thank you very much for my, making my walking, train riding, bus sitting time, entertaining and educational. Naked science rocks. Thanks so much, Brian. That's fantastic. But he does have a question for us. And that is, why is it that even though he has light brown hair, um, when he gets in the shower, pool or hot spring which apparently is one of the best parts of Japan he says sounds very nice to me why is it that his light brown hair looks darker when it gets wet I think the reason Helen is that when hair gets wet it gets closer together so the individual hairs get matted and stuck together the reason that hair is lighter when it's drier is the same reason that glass is completely clear but when you make glass into lots of tiny particles called sand and that reminds me about tonight's teaser by the way we're asking you how many atoms there are in a grain of sand closest answer will win a mud powered clock get calling now 08459252000 advert over back to the answer to this question uh, the reason is when you powder up glass and make grains of sand they look a light colour don't they they don't transmit light they're not transparent anymore so what's happening with the hair it, when it's dry is that light is bouncing around all over the place just like snow reflects lots of white light lots of wavelengths come back it looks lighter when the hairs are very very close together more light can go through rather than be reflected back so it looks darker i think that's the reason it reminds me slightly differently but how i used to like getting my hair wet when i was younger because it meant my very curly hair which i hated and still do to some extent went nice and straight but i guess that's a different reason again but that weighing down of wet hair so it was nice and sleek and straight is why i like getting in the bath <laughs> it's the naked scientists with dodd chris and dr helen and we're taking your science questions on our science q a for the naked scientists this week any question goes, 
08459 25 2000, email chris at nakedscientist.com or send in a text on 07786 20 Brian in Costa Blanca answered our question about uh, peeing, whether he thinks that you can pee hard enough to knock yourself over backwards. He says, uh, yes, your pee could knock you over. And he also says he turned around once and hit someone with his stream and the guy fell over. Um, hmm. Sounds dodgy, doesn't it? Does that ever happen to you? I don't know. Hopefully not. Uh, and Alan in Lowestoft's wondering why it is that water freezes at zero. Why, If water freezes at zero, why do we get a frost at around three degrees? Answer that one coming up in just two ticks. But first of all, let's find out what the guys over on the other side of the pond, the Science Update crew, have got for us this week. This week for The Naked Scientists, we're bringing you stories from the annual meeting of our organisation, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, going on right now in San Francisco, California. I'm going to tell you why smart kids choke on mathematics exams, but first, Chelsea has this story about how drugs work in your brain. If you want to know what it's like to be addicted to cocaine, you might imagine being really, really hungry. That's according to Friday's presentation by neuroscientist Nora Volkov, director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse. She found that the brains of cocaine addicts release the pleasure chemical dopamine when exposed to drug cues, like images of people using drugs or drug paraphernalia. She says that's the same thing that happens in the brains of food-deprived people exposed to food cues. What drugs are doing are uh, taking advantage of circuits that are there for very specific purpose. The circuits that get tapped by drugs are those circuits that are there in order for us to survive as individuals, those circles that will ensure that we will do behaviors that are indispensable, such as eating. And she says that's why addicts can't resist the urge to get high any more than a starving person could resist the urge to eat. Thanks, Chelsea. The best mathematics students are also the most susceptible to choking under pressure. This according to the work of University of Chicago psychologist Sian Bylock, who spoke here yesterday. Her team found that top students rely on their superior working memory to solve complex problems. But average students often fall back on less accurate shortcuts, like estimation. Under pressure, however, our higher working memory individuals didn't continue with the complex algorithm. They actually switched to the shortcut. So their performance looked like the low working memory individuals under pressure, and now we have some idea why this is the case. She says that because pressure appears to sabotage working memory, high-stakes exams may not accurately identify the best and the brightest. Thanks, Bob. Next time we'll be back in Washington, D.C., bringing you stories from our side of the Atlantic. Until then, I'm Chelsea Wald. And I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. Back to you, Naked Scientists. Thanks, guys. That's great. And remember, if you want to find out more about Science Updates, you can always check out their website, www.scienceupdate.com. Good question here uh, from uh, Josh Helen, who's wondering, when I'm cracking my knuckles back and forth in anticipation of the next Naked Scientist podcast, you didn't say that, I just added that. But, <laughs> Very nice. Is it true that it causes arthritis if you do this a lot? What's physically happening when you crack your knuckles and other things? Is it, it's um, pockets of air, isn't it, that you're bursting, that, that build up. And can, I you, can you crack your things? Because I, I can't make that happen. Oh, you can. Nasty, go, nasty. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, the, the, this is interesting because people have wondered about this for some time because you think it probably is deleterious to your joints, isn't it, if you've got these big bubbles going... <laughs> My hands crack. certainly hurt right um, now, but... <laughs> well, anyway, a little bit of the anatomy, what's going on here? Well, as Helen says, when you put the joint under tension, what you're doing is reducing the pressure inside the joint. So you get a little click, because all the ligaments around the side of the joint that stabilise it get sucked in against the fluid in the joint. Because the pressure in the fluid is reduced gas that's dissolved in that fluid 
can then come into one big bubble and it goes boop and it pops into existence and that bubble takes up about 15% of the joint space that, you, that that's there for mm-hmm. the fluid to yep. occupy normally. Now because that obviously is quite a big space in something that's full of fluid it pushes all of the little ligaments that were in against the side of the joint back out again and they go snap and that's the cracking sound you hear. Now the energy that's made or, or unleashed in making and then collapsing that bubble that's, that gets formed is about people think 7% of the amount of energy you need to actually damage cartilage. So it shouldn't, in theory, be able to cause arthritis. Some facts and figures, though. There was a guy called Daniel Unger, and don't ask me why he did this, but he cracked the joints of his left hand for 50 years, but not the joints of his right hand, and he did not have any signs of his left hand being more arthritic than his right hand. Then there's been one other study, bit dicey, but there were 300 people who all cracked their joints for 35 years. There was no evidence of an increased risk of arthritis amongst those people. But their grip strength was much, much weaker. It was only about 25% of what it should be. Okay, so perhaps maybe we shouldn't. I don't know. Perhaps or not enough, not too much. I think I'm a general believer in life of everything in moderation. So don't crack your knuckles that much, and it should be all right. Don't forget our kitchen science this week. We're asking you to get a nice glossy magazine, take it outside, and look at the colours under the nearest street lamp. What do you see? You could win yourself a mud-powered clock. Oh eight four five nine twenty five two thousand for your observations. Now Mike is in Molden. Hi Mike. Hello there. Welcome to the Naked Scientist. Um, I use, uh, not regular, but quite often, silicone sealer, you know, the sort of stuff you put around a bath and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. uh, to, to seal it off. And it's always trying to get a finish. And the only thing that sort of really finishes it off between, you know, into a right angle, in, uh, from the tiles to the bath, as it were, is to wet your finger. And over the years, I've tried all sorts of things from... A piece of round steel in, and fairy liquid and oh, salt water and everything. But the only thing that really works is to wet your finger and just run it along. And just keep wetting your finger and run it along. And why does that work, I guess, yeah. is what you're asking. The reason is that silicon, um, it's not like silicon you find in microchips. Silicone, as in the stuff that you seal things with, a nice jelly, is actually a big polymer. It's like a long, It's like loads of spaghetti chains all linked together, and it's uh, it's lots of silicon surrounded by oxygens, and they form these big long chains linked up end to end, and they actually are water rep- repellent. So if you lick your finger and smooth it, then what you're doing is being able to push it into place, but it won't stick to you because your finger's got a layer of water and it doesn't like water so much. So it'll bond to other surfaces, but not to the water. So your finger f- forms a sort of insulating layer of water, keeping the silicon away from you and as a result you can push it into the shape you want. But why doesn't it work when you dip your finger into a pot of salt water or even just a pot of ordinary water? Hmm, interesting. The only thing I can think is that there are other clever things in saliva, such as a, a protein called mucin, which is why your saliva's all slimy, and that may also be helping to lubricate and, and prevent the silicone from locking onto your finger. That's the only thing I can think, though, but it's a difficult question. I think we may have to take it as homework. Perhaps someone out there can help us with it. But it definitely does. I mean, I've tried it with all sorts of things, from thinners, um, fair, as I say, washing up liquid, um, thinners, salt water. You know, I thought, oh, right, if you, if you can lick your finger, then salt water must work. But, but it yeah, doesn't. No, I think no it's probably chance. some other constituent in the saliva. Maybe someone out there knows the answer. We'll find out for you. Yes, please. Do you want to go to the quiz, Mike? Yeah, OK. A flu virus is about half the size of a human hair. Do you think that's fact or fiction? Uh... 
Well, it's certainly got to be small, so probably, I should think that's, actually, I should think that's fiction. I should think it's even smaller than half the size. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. It's much, much tinier than that, about one ten thousandth of a millimetre across. Yeah. Very tiny indeed. Next question. The most abundant element in the solar system is iron, which is why Mars, for example, is red. Is that science fact or science fiction? No, I, I've always understood hydrogen was the most abundant thing in the solar system. You've got it for us. Absolutely right. Well done. Fantastic. Right. Thank you, Mike. Great to have you on the show. Bye. That question which we had from Alan in Lowestoft, wanting to know if water freezes at zero degrees, why do we get a frost around three degrees? Uh, sorry, water freezes at zero, why do we get a frost at three? Well, what I think's going on is that the ground is a source of radiative heat. So just as we talked about on a show the other day about how a car's front and back window, because they're pointing up at the sky, lose heat more quickly than the side windows on the car, i.e. by radiating their, their thermal energy up to the open sky, and that's why they freeze more quickly whilst the side windows pick up heat from nearby buildings and trees, so they don't freeze so quickly. I think what's happening when you see the air temperature being some degrees above zero and the ground actually having frost on it, what's going on is that the ground is a radiative heat source. So it can see the clear sky above it on a clear night, so the ground totally radiates away all of its energy very, very fast to the sky and goes down to zero or below zero very effectively because the ground's good at giving up energy. But the air and the atmosphere sitting above the ground is essentially transparent to the radiation so that it doesn't actually insulate the ground very much. And also air molecules are not very good at giving up the energy that they've already got. So they lose their energy much more slowly than the ground does. So the air can still be at, say, 3 degrees, but the ground is now lower than that, say 0 or even minus 3 degrees. So the frost forms on the ground but the air temperature is still not quite freezing. So I hope that answers that question. Um, Laurie in Hutton says, In the Middle Ages, they thought the world was flat. Is the universe flat, or does it just go on and on and on, or is it a certain shape? Well, the answer is, Laurie, we don't know. But what we do know for sure is that the universe is getting a lot larger. It's expanding. And if you look at distant galaxies, like the Milky Way, but a long, long way from us, they're what's called redshifted. And what that means is the light waves coming from them to us have been stretched out. And the reason they've been stretched out is because the space separating us and that distant galaxy has got bigger. So it's stretched the waves and it makes the galaxy, well, red, more red dominated than it should be. And that's the same reason that when a police car comes towards you, it sounds different to when it's going away from you, when it's got the siren going, obviously, because of this thing called the Doppler effect. And it's the same phenomenon. Now, we were asking you earlier about this question of uh, if someone peed hard enough, could they knock themselves off their feet? Well, I'm very pleased to say uh, we have an answer on this. Andrew Liner is a physics teacher and he works in Brighton at Cardinal Newman School. Hello, Andrew. Hi. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. Now, can you help us with this question, please? Yeah, well, these these problems are rather hard to put your finger on, but I was thinking, well, what's going to make you... I'll not put my finger on this question, <laughs> if I may. <laughs> well, not in it anyway. Um, yeah, if you're uh, on a travelator... On a, on a you know supermarket um, if that suddenly started off with a bang or stopped with a bang you'd fall over if it's going too fast and I looked on the website to see travelators and apparently the Department of Transport they say that a half a meter a second is a safe speed so I guess this guy who's ailed up as uh, it was said if suddenly it started up or stopped you'd probably fall over so what you're after is moving somebody with a sort of jolt up to half a metre a second. Now, um, as the other guy said, it's a matter of action and reaction. If I'm, I'm 85 kilograms. Now, if I was going to have to move at half a metre a second, 
backwards, I'd have to project one kilogram of water at 42.5 metres a second. Now, that is 150 kilometres an hour. If you could do that, you could actually pee 90 metres in the air. That's a, that's, Helen's laughing, that sounds Can you there achieve that, Helen? No, <laughs> no definitely not. Um, that sounds ridiculous. No, I'd be hard pushed for that. So, so, you know, what size urethra would that take? I mean, you know, how much, how much would you have to be peeing out to get that kind well, of acceleration? You're talking, you're talking about a, a fireman's hose with... Um... Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm popular with the ladies, but not that popular. <laughs> yes. Yes, bragging again. Um, I think you, we're really talking about a fireman's hose, which is would be something like about two kilowatts of energy put, of power put into it to to do anything like that. Well, not even that height. And uh, and is the human body capable of that kind of output? Well, you can run upstairs briefly if you're fit uh, and expend about one kilowatt for a short time. Now that's using the large muscles of your legs to do that. Um, your abdominal muscles, well, they're not designed to do that at all. So the answer is, is probably, well, definitely not. So you'd need muscles, the power of what you've got in your legs, in your abdomen, around your bladder, to be able to expel urine that fast in order to be able to push yourself over if you were urinating that hard. Yeah. So we, even as, as Will Kurt, uh, puts it from Missouri, if someone was ailed up, that's still an impossible feat. Yeah, I think getting rid of, of one one kilogram, that's two pints nearly of water, I think that's... In one second. In one second. That's, that's not on, really. Is a tall order. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, thank you very much for explaining it so clearly. OK, pleasure. It's Andrew Liner, who's a physics teacher at Cardinal Newman School in Brighton, listens to us on the internet. Thank you very much, Andrew. And uh, thank you very much, Will, for a very entertaining question, and it got us thinking and taught us some physics. If you have an interesting question you'd like us, the Naked Scientist, to solve for you, then send it in, chris at nakedscientist.com. Got a very quick one here. Uh, and Helen, I, I thought this was relevant this week because of this, this poor lady, that German lady, Eva Wisniewska, who ended up at the top of a thundercloud at the height of Everest, got sucked up on her paraglider. And uh, Sander Voss, who's listening to us in the Netherlands, said, um, I've got a question for you because my girlfriend and I were talking about flying in a plane the other day. And it we talked about the fact that the higher you go, the colder it gets. And she asked me, how can this be since the sunshine and UV radiation is everywhere, isn't it? Uh, well, the bottom line here is that the atmosphere of the Earth is pretty much transparent to the heat coming from the sun, which arrives down and hits the surface of the Earth. It uh, heats the surface of the Earth with about the amount of energy of one kilowatt per metre squared. So that's one electric bar on a fire per, kilo kilo um, per metre squared. This heat then gets radiated back up into the air, warms the air close to the planet, so it keeps you warm close to the surface of the planet. But then the hot air rises goes up in the atmosphere, expands, and just as in a fridge, you compress a liquid and then expand it very quickly and it gets very, very cold, that, um, that water, sorry, that air, as it gets high in the atmosphere, gets cold and it cools down. And that's why, as you go higher up in the atmosphere, things get a lot colder. There's another reason as well, which is if you're at the top of Everest, it's a pointy surface, doesn't have, uh, where it has twice the surface area to reflect the sun's light back off because it's covered in snow and also to lose heat, so things tend to be colder. Laying the facts bare... Ooh. The Naked Scientists.
Well, now let's go back to Cottenham, where Anna, Dave and Luke and Alice are waiting to tell us all the answer to this week's Kitchen Science. Hi, guys. Hello, and welcome back to Cottenham, where we're here with Luke and Alice and Dave, standing under a nice orangey streetlight outside, also with lots of coats on because we're quite cold. It's a bit chilly out here, isn't it, Alice? Yes. <laughs> yeah, she's got a nice nice coat on there, fairy hood. But uh, Dave, so tell us, what do we need to do now while we're standing out here? Well, we're standing outside the streetlight and I've got the nice multicoloured magazine here and all we've got to do is have a look at it and see if it looks strange at all. Luke, can you tell us, what kind of colours can you see on the magazine now? Well, it's now very yellow because it's in yellow light, I suppose. But um, all the colours have gone all dull and yellow. And, and what about you, Alice? What, what kind of colours can you see now? Well, I say dull the same as Luke and the green has gone yellow and but you can still see the ink yeah that's it so you can still kind of see the pictures you can see the drawings on there but yeah the colors you they kind of look a bit kind of gray and not very interesting so dave why is it first of all that we can see the different colors on the magazine in normal light anyway well white light's got all the colors of the rainbow in it so if you've got a green area it will tend to absorb red and blue and all the other colors like that and reflect lots of green light so it will look green and the same for all the other colors Okay, so now we've come out here under uh, an orange light. As, as Luke and Alice are saying, it looks kind of yellowy and a bit dull. Why is that? Well, the street lights are a very special kind of yellow light. They actually only produce light and a very, very narrow set of colours. So it's only a certain yellowy-orange light that comes out. So it either reflects that yellowy-orange light or it doesn't. So you can only see yellow or not yellow, so it looks monochrome. So basically we've only got orange light coming out. There are only orange things that can be reflected. So if there's no orange in in the colour on the paper, then it can't reflect it. And so we just see this yeah, kind of grey, boring thing. That's right. Now, if we can come over here and actually look at it in the indicators of my car over here and see if it looks any different. So we're just going over now. And uh, yeah, Dave's got his indicators flashing. And, and Luke, can you just verify for us, what colour is the light of the indicator? It's orange. So we have another orange light. But now, Alice, can you tell me, under this orange light, can you see any colours? Yes, it's, it's restored to the normal colours again. But the green is still a bit yellow. OK, but, but yeah, you can see, you're right, you've, they've restored some of the colours. So, yeah, we can see a bit of pink here. And, uh, yeah, the, no, that's great. So, so, Dave, we had an orange light and saw not very many colours, but now we've got another orange light and suddenly we can see them all again. Why is that? Well, there's more than one way of making orange light. You can either make it out of pure orange light or you can make it of a mixture of a bit of red, a bit of green, a bit of yellow, a bit of orange. And that's what the light coming from these indicators is. So you can still see colours because it, the light's a mixture of colours. So you're kind of saying, I suppose, that we've got two lights that look to us like they're both orange, but actually one of them's just pure orange, and this is actually a a whole mixture of colours that also look to us like orange. Yeah, that's because your eyes are actually not that not very sophisticated at seeing colours. They only can see how much reddy colours there are, how many greeny colours and how many bluey colours. And so you can make the same signal in your eyes with different mixtures of light. Does that surprise you, Luke, that actually this orange light is actually letting out a bit of green, it's letting out a bit of red, so we can see the colours again? I mean, is that surprising? Well, I haven't even thought of it before. I didn't know how many colours there was in that orange indicator. Yeah, I mean, actually, that was a surprise to me too. I mean, I suppose it's kind of like mixing paint. You can either buy orange paint at the shop or you could buy red and you could buy yellow and mix them together. So uh, so anyway, Alice, uh, w- what did you think of that experiment? Well, I think it was like... Very weird. That's great. And Luke, have we put you off science for life or does that make you start thinking I might ask some more questions? You put me off. (laughs) 
<laughs> Luke, I'm sorry, we've ruined your life. I know you were quite a keen scientist before you came onto this. But, uh, thanks very much to both Luke and Alice and, of course, uh, our science guru, Dave. And, uh, yeah, we'll be back next week with some more kitchen science. Thank you very much. Anna Lacey there from The Naked Scientist with Dave, Luke and Alice exploring what happens when you wave a magazine underneath a street lamp. We also heard from Daniel in Sittingbourne who said you couldn't see any colours, it's all shady and white, but he was pipped to the post by David who is in Norwich. Is that what you found, David? Yes, absolutely. It became black and white uh, and we guessed uh, it was the same reason that uh, you didn't have a full spectrum of a white light, you had an orange light. Um, Brilliant. Thank you very much. I think you're the proud possessor now of a mud-powered clock, which is on its way to you. Thank you, David, for joining us on The Naked Scientist. Thank you. If you want to take part in our experiment next week, then you're going to be doing something really fantastic because you need to get some sugar lumps or hard bits of sugar from an oldish sugar bag, which are the ones that have been hiding at the back of the cupboard and got a bit damp in the past. They need to have a few lumps of sugar in it. You're going to need a pair of pliers, a glass dish and a very dark room. I promise you it's worth having a go at this next week. Helen. Cool. Now, I think it's time to put you all out of your misery and tell you how many atoms there are in a grain of sand. This is actually quite difficult, but you've been really fantastic and we've had some very, very close answers. Um, And I think we'll have to pull a name out of the hat after the show and decide who gets a prize. But just to quickly go through it, the the way we work out how many atoms there are in a grain of sand is using a scientific rule called the Avogadro's number, which says... Avocado? I thought that was kind of food. Yes, Okay. Um, But this basically tells us that there's a fixed number of atomic units um, in every gram of matter of anything in the world anything in the universe has a certain number of atomic units per gram and sand is made up of silica each molecule is made up of one atom of silicon and two atoms of oxygen and you add them all up together and they each have their um, 28 atomic units for a silicon 16 each for the oxygen which means that each each molecule of, of silica, silica is 60 atomic units we have roughly 6 times 10 to the 23 um, atomic units per gram um, so if we work out working that through um, how much, uh, how many grams there are in a grain of sand. We think it's about 0.026 grams per grain of sand and therefore divide that by the number of atomic units there are in a unit of silicon and you come up with, in a molecule of silicon, an atom, we come up with 7.8 times 10 to the 19, which is 78 million, million, million atoms in a grain of sand. I think that's right. What do you reckon, guys? <laughs> Pretty close, but who who was the winner? In the- okay, all right. We had two who were actually just, who hit on 7.2 times 10 to the 19, but I'll, pulling one out of the hat randomly, we'll have Simon from Barrow in Bury St Edmunds. Thanks to everyone else who sent in lots of really close answers, but um, that was it. Fantastic. Well, that was a pretty simple calculation, wasn't it? Thank you, Helen. Also, thank you to Petro Minch, Anna Lacey, Dave Ansell, Mark Peplow and Andrew Liner for taking part in this week's show. And also thank you to you at home for your company. Now, next time, we're going to be exploring the world of parasites, including finding out how intestinal worms can be used to treat Crohn's disease and allergies. We'll be hearing how we pick up parasites in the first place and how we can tackle the problem with a revolutionary new way to clean up drinking water. If you'd like to ask us any questions about that or just say hi, then please drop me a line. It's Chris and at nakedscientists.com. In the meantime, don't forget there's also the Nature Podcast. That's at nature.com forward slash nature forward slash podcast for more cutting-edge science news. And for some top science chat, then why not check out the Naked Scientist discussion forum? That's at nakedscientists.com forward slash forum. Have a great week. Once again, thank you very much for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.